Who were the Bilderbergs and what did they discuss at their recent conference in Montreux, Switzerland? Is there a correlation between the Bilderberg discourse over the weaponizing of social media and purging days later of the YouTube channels of prominent independent journalists and activists? Who or what is the transnational capitalist class and how are they directing world affairs? What is behind the increasing tendency toward hiring private security firms like G4S to enforce the global capitalist order? How could the broader public mobilize to alter the priorities of the players embedded in this destructive financial system before it's too late? On this week's Global Research News Hour, we take a close look at the elite players who dominate world affairs behind the scenes and appear to have more influence over nominally democratic governments than the citizens who vote for them. In our first half hour, we hear from Canadian independent journalist Dan Dix about his coverage of the recent Bilderberg conference in Switzerland and about the consequent attack on his own social media platform in the days that followed. In our second half hour, Professor Peter Phillips joins us to discuss his latest book on the global power structure and the relatively small number of unelected individuals who are determining the fate of humanity. This week's program, Who Rules the World? Bilderberg 2019 and the Global Power Elite. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of June 7th, 2019. I'm series host and producer Michael Welch. The Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration between the Center for Research on Globalization and campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg, unoccupied Anishinaabegakin, the homeland of the Métis Nation and the historical territory of the Nahiwak and the Nakota. We seek to provide you with access to analysis of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our program is available from the Center's website, globalresearch.ca. We'll begin our show with News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. Specifically, Citizen President, I propose to deepen our dialogue and seek alternatives to the immigration problem. And please remember that I do not lack courage, that I am not cowardly or timorous, but that I act on principles. I believe that politics was invented to avoid confrontation and war, among other things. I do not believe in the law of the talon, in a tooth for a tooth, or an eye for an eye, because if we practiced it, we would all be toothless and one-eyed. I believe that as a statement, and even more so as patriots, we are obliged to seek peaceful solutions to controversies and to practice the beautiful ideal of nonviolence forever. That was from President López Obrador of Mexico's letter to Donald Trump, I don't want confrontation. Posted June 4th, translated from the original Spanish by the Mazatlan Post, originally appearing at lopezobrador.org.mx. In the latest example of fake news disseminated without any hint of skepticism by America's top journalists, virtually every major media outlet reported that a senior North Korean official named Kim Yong-chol was supposedly forced into a labor camp as part of a large, deadly purge. Two days later, that same official turned up alive at a public art performance seated next to North Korean leader Kim Jong-un. 
Bloomberg kicked off the fake news frenzy on May 30th by publishing a report claiming North Korea executed its former top nuclear envoy to the U.S. and four other foreign ministry officials in March after a failed summit between Kim and Donald Trump. Bloomberg's source for this false story was South Korea's far-right newspaper Chosun Ilbo, which has a long history of fabricating stories about North Korea. In turn, Chosun Ilbo's story was based on a single unidentified source. That comes from the article, Top U.S. Journalists Spread Fake News Claiming North Korean Official Was Purged, Then He Shows Up on TV, by Ben Norton, posted June 4th, originally published at The Gray Zone. Ottawa supports putting pressure on Cuba in the hopes of further isolating, demonizing the Maduro government. But the Trudeau government is simultaneously uncomfortable with how the U.S. campaign against Cuba threatens the interests of some Canadian-owned businesses. The other subject atop the agenda when Freeland traveled to Havana was Washington's decision to allow lawsuits for property confiscated after the 1959 Cuban Revolution. The Trump administration recently activated a section of the Helms-Burton Act that permits Cubans and U.S. citizens to sue foreign companies doing business in Cuba over property nationalized decades ago. The move could trigger billions of dollars in legal claims in U.S. courts against Canadian and European businesses operating on the island. That comes from the article, Trudeau Government Squeezes Cuba, by Eve Engler, posted June 5th, originally published on the author's blog site. As of June 5th, U.S. citizens will be prohibited from making group educational and cultural trips, known as people-to-people, travel to Cuba, Secretary of Commerce Steve Mnuchin of the U.S. Treasury Department confirmed in a statement Tuesday. According to the commercial director at Cuba's tourism ministry, Michelle Bernal, the island nation received about 250,000 U.S. visitors in the first four months of 2019, which represented a 93.5% increase from the same period in 2018. For the time being, commercial airline flights and travel for university groups, academic research, journalism, and professional meetings will continue to be allowed. In response to the new sanctions, Cuba Foreign Minister Bruno Rodriguez wrote on Twitter that he, quote, strongly rejects new sanctions announced by the U.S., which further restrict U.S. citizens' travels to Cuba, aimed at suffocating the economy and harming the living standards of Cubans in order to forcefully obtain political concessions. Once again, they will fail. That comes from the article, U.S. Bans Educational and Recreational Travel to Cuba, post-June 5th, originally published on Telesur. There are many more claims presented by Rosemary Mason in her report, but the take-home point is that the reality of the agrochemical industry is masked by well-funded public relations machinery, which includes bodies like the UK's Science Media Centre. The industry also subverts official agencies and regulatory bodies and supports prolific lobby organizations and public scientists, quote-unquote, which masquerade as objective institutions. When such organizations or figures are exposed, they frequently cry foul and attempt to portray any exposure of their lack of integrity as constituting an attack on science itself. No doubt many readers will be familiar with the anti-science epithet. The industry resorts to such measures as it knows its products are harmful and cannot stand up to proper public scrutiny. 
That comes from the article, From Glyphosate to Front Groups, Fraud, Deception, and Toxic Tactics, by Colin Todd Hunter, posted June 5th. It emerged on June 3rd that the ICC had received a legal submission calling for the EU and some of its member states to face prosecution for enacting migration policies intended to sacrifice the lives of migrants in distress at sea. The sharply worded submission was brought by international lawyers who have asked the ICC to open an investigation into EU migration policies and whether a prosecution could be mounted under international law. The lawyers assessed European migration policies in the Mediterranean over recent years, paying particular attention to the end of Italy's military humanitarian rescue operation Mare Nostrum in 2014 and the subsequent shift to policies focused on deterrence. Their submission claims that the shift toward deterring migrants from crossing the Mediterranean to reach the EU resulted in, one, the deaths by drowning of thousands of migrants, two, the refoulement of tens of thousands of migrants attempting to flee Libya, and three, complicity in the subsequent crimes of deportation, murder, imprisonment, enslavement, torture, rape, persecution, and other inhuman acts taking place in Libyan detention camps and torture houses. According to the ICC submission, these crimes against humanity were consciously perpetrated by the EU and member states in the belief that sacrificing migrant lives at sea would stop other migrants from making risky voyages across the Mediterranean. That comes from the article, EU sued at International Criminal Court over Mediterranean Migration Policy as More Die at Sea, by Maurice Stierl, posted June 5th, originally published at The Conversation. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. The 67th Annual Bilderberg Conference was held the weekend of May 30th through June 2nd, this year in the Swiss municipality of Montreux, at the foothills of the Alps and on the shoreline of Lake Geneva. Broader public awareness of these conferences and the presence of prominent figures from the fields of politics, high finance and industry, as well as European royalty, has generated considerable speculation about the goings-on at these meetings and if they constitute a cabal of elites plotting to take over the world or otherwise advance their own interests, potentially at the expense of the bulk of humanity. According to the group's press release, some 130 participants from 23 countries were expected to attend. Key topics for discussion were to include the following. A stable strategic order. What next for Europe? Climate change and sustainability. China. Russia. The future of capitalism. Brexit. The ethics of artificial intelligence. The weaponization of social media. The importance of space and cyber threats. The event typically attracts independent journalists and activists determined to confront the powerful and or ferret out a glimpse of their plans. One of the independent journalists who routinely travels to the conference locations to glean as much information as possible is Dan Dix. He's been proximate to nine of these events in the last 13 years and managed to make it out to Montreux for the May 30th to June 2nd gathering. 
we reached out to Dan on Wednesday, June 5th, at a time when a massive purge of social media platforms, including his own, had begun. The Canadian journalist provided us with a breakdown of the obstacles he confronted trying to cover Bilderberg 2019. Basically, yes, we, we were... Uh... We were given very, very last-minute notice. Usually, in my experience in the past, there's at least been either leaks or, or you know, uh, moles from the inside who have leaked out information or or other uh, journalists like the late, great Jim Tucker who, who has been able to get information from the inside out to explain where and when these things would happen. But this year has been very, very different in the sense that the Bilderberg Group did not mention where and when and what the topics on the agenda were going to be until right up till 48 hours before the event. Now, this is obviously uh, designed to make it a lot more difficult for people like myself to get out there uh, to cover this type of an event. Um, as you can imagine, booking uh, last-minute plane tickets is not exactly easy. Setting up the logistics of the hotel and things of that nature uh, became very tricky this time around. And... I noticed that it wasn't only that. that. That was just the beginning of the level of secrecy that this year's Bilderberg seemed to have in particular. Uh, because what I started noticing is when I would eventually have a chance to speak with some of these guys, a lot of them would not even say no comment. And that's the first time I've ever seen anything like that. Usually I'm able to get at least a brief comment or a statement out of most of them. This time they were very, very tight-lipped. And it was very, very last minute on the on the reveal of the location. So it seems the uh, the, the secrecy and and the lack of transparency has been heightened this time uh, compared to uh, previous years. Do you have any sense of what would have triggered that? I mean, was there a disclosure or revelation from a past event that may have prompted this kind of clampdown? Well, it's tough to say, really. Um, but one thing I do know for sure is that over the years. Bilderberg has kind of been forced to become more transparent. The very fact that they have a website uh, is not by their by their choice. This is due to pressure after decades and decades of exposure to the group to the point where they have to kind of hide in plain sight, as it were, and, uh, and, and start to uh, 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 openly uh, sort of reveal these things. So it could be a matter of the fact that over the last decade at least, uh, guys like myself and others have been showing up to these places and putting the pressure on these people to to get some of this information out. So maybe they've reached a point where they say, you know what, enough is enough. Let's not give these guys any more information. I think we've been putting the pressure on them for the last 10 years or so. And uh, now they're they're looks like they're getting sick and tired of it and just want to cut it off completely. How did you know who was going to the conference? I mean, it's not as if they were wearing name tags as they get off the plane saying, hi, I'm an oligarch. Yeah, well, that's that, that's a tricky one. Um, often uh, I will literally spend, you know, hours and hours studying uh, the faces of, of the participants list and, and memorizing the faces and getting getting my head around who some of the attendees are that particular year. And yes, it can be very, very tricky. Um, you know, a lot of the times when, when we run into these guys, it's, it's literally, you know, you'll, you'll turn around and, oh, wow, there's this person. And you need to immediately try to think of, you know, a, a good question or something to get them with. Or you got to look up, you know, your list. We would often have our uh, pictures of these guys on our phone and, I would take a quick minute to confirm that it is or isn't who I think it is. 
And then you might have a few seconds to, to craft a question. So you really got to know your stuff going into it and you got to do your due diligence and you really got to bone up on who the, the attendees are by studying their faces. And, uh, and then, you know, hopefully you'll recognize them when you bump into them. And you had some assistance on the ground as well. I know that Luke Rudkowski of We Are Change had joined you in Geneva and a few other guys, and, and you were able to collaborate and triangulate forces in order to engage some of these folks. Yeah, well, Luke and I have been doing this together for, for years. I believe he's been to just as many as I have, about eight or nine of them. And um, yeah, absolutely. We, we, we constantly help each other out uh, in, in this. Um, there was, as you say, there was a number of other people, a guy named uh, Max Backman, uh, a guy named uh, Josh Friedman, and that was about it uh, this year. Um, and so, yeah, we, we, uh, we often have each other's backs in these events because it's not about competition. Um, we're all there with the same objective. We're all there with the same agenda. We want to get the word out about what's going on. And, uh, and yes, we often help each other to, uh, to, to, to get the information, whether it be coming out on my channel or Luke's channel or Josh's channel, it doesn't really matter. As long as the information comes out, that's what they're, we're there to do. It's not about a competition within the field of alternative media. No, we really network with one another, help each other out so that we all can uh, defeat this thing and grow together. Talk about the security presence that you encountered on your first day there. Sure. Well, on the first day, it uh, was a lot harsher than it was any other day, because on the first day we were at the airport con confronting some members at the airport, and that's when the airport security staff decided to detain us and put us in a, a little holding cell for a little while. So my experience on day one was being detained and held by the police, airport police and police security uh, there at the airport. Um, but to be honest, I've, I've been arrested before going to Co uh, uh, Bilderbergs. I've been thrown in jail before. And these were some of the most friendly police officers I've actually ever dealt with. And that actually continued, to my surprise, uh, over the next few days. Uh, they were very kind of relaxed and kind of calm and courteous. And um, in my experience, the Swiss police were some of the, the, the most well-behaved cops I've ever had to deal with uh, in this type of uh, stuff. So that's something positive, I guess we can take away from this. Is that, isn't it, It's not like in Germany when I was, you know, detained, I think it was eight times in the period of less than 24 hours. In Switzerland, uh, people were pretty calm, uh, you know, courteous and uh, generally respectful and curious about what I was doing there. And I actually talked to a lot of the police officers and educated them about what we were doing there. And they seemed to uh, pretty interested. So that, that was cool. Do you suppose there was direction from on high along the lines of keep these reporters away from our delegates, but don't give them anything to complain about? Or is this simply a Swiss cultural thing? It's tough to say, you know, th there could have been a, uh, a, a PR issue. They, they could have been told, look, don't get, give these guys, you know, anything to, uh, you know, any, any kind of footage that they can use or whatever. But I, I don't actually think that's the case. Just j just my general vibe of, of Switzerland in general um, was that I, I think these these police officers are, are just a little bit different from other ones around the world. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's the training. Um, but uh, whatever it is, I certainly appreciated it compared to all the other Bilderbergs. Talk about some of the conversations you had with people in the street. Not the Bilderberg attendees, but, you know, general folks in the street, town folk. 
What were their thoughts about this conference, if any? Uh, well, it's funny enough. I I, uh, I spoke with um, the the hotel manager. He was very very interested in it. I also spoke with another owner of a tennis club, who had all this thrust upon him because his tennis club was located on an area where the Bilderberg members were going to have to cross a, a you know cross a, a, across his property in order to get on a boat. So uh, the police came to his business and told him uh, he's going to have to shut down a little bit early. And uh, I was telling him, you know, you, you should be compensated for such a thing because, you know, this has nothing to do with you. These guys are coming into town. So there were a few uh, businesses who were aware of what was going on simply because uh, they were told by the police they could no longer operate. Um, but I think the general population was not really aware, was pretty much clueless to the fact that this was going on. And that's another point is that I, there were, really weren't many protesters. I, you know, I, usually at Bilderberg meetings now we see we see a number of protesters. In Switzerland, there really wasn't a lot. There was maybe five to ten at at the most um, at any given time. Um, so uh, that was kind of sad to see. So generally, the population didn't seem too uh, too aware of it, other than the few business owners who had been uh, notified that they have to get out of the way. I suppose that might reflect the lack of media coverage. Yeah, well, th this is what happens when they have Chatham House rules. And when, when you have such a, a, a blackout like this, people are not going to get the information that they deserve, and they're only left to, to speculate. And that's why we have so many uh, conspiracy theories that, that arise around this group, because they don't publish the mid uh, mi minutes of the meetings. And um, one is only left to speculate based on the agendas, the topics that are given for the agenda, and the people who are on the participants list. But the reason why I go every year is because I often find discrepancies, not only in the agenda, but also in the participants list. And when you find those discrepancies, you can start to uh, get, get, get some ideas of uh, what is really on the agenda. And then it's interesting to see how these things play out in the coming days, weeks, and months. Why don't we talk about some of those discrepancies? There was the official list of topics and attendees, but... What did you manage to glean from people who were known to be there? And what does that suggest to you about what the actual agenda might have been? Well, there were a number of discrepancies in the list um, in regards to names that uh, were not on there, but people who did show up. Uh, an example is uh, Mike Pompeo. He's the former uh, uh, director of the CIA under Trump. <clears throat> and um, he was not on the list, but he did attend. There were a few other people uh, who were on the list, and then the names were removed from the list because they ended up not attending. That's something I've uh, uh, never really seen before. And uh, of course, you know, along with Pompeo, you got guys like Kushner meeting there. So with him and Pompeo together, this, as far as I know, makes up uh, one of the, the, the most representatives of a sitting president at Bilderberg that we have ever seen. And that was a first time for that. So that's why it's important to get there because if, if we weren't there, we wouldn't have been able to confirm that Pompeo was indeed in attendance. But because we were there, we got the footage of it, we were able to say, yes, he was indeed there, even though his name wasn't on the list. Given the breadth of what was there, the discrepancies, the presence of Pompeo, I'm asking you to speculate a little, but what would be your main take coming out of this conference? 
Well, considering that there was a number of uh, big tech people there, there was a lot of uh, robotics people there, a lot of AI people. There was uh, representatives, uh, you know, the C CEO of, of Microsoft was there. Um, the, the former executive chairman of Google and uh, Alphabet Inc., Eric Schmidt, was there. Um, I, I think uh, considering that these types of people were, were there um, leads one to believe that uh, uh, dealing with uh, data uh, and online uh, censorship and, and controlling free speech online was something that was certainly discussed. And that brings me to something that just happened today, which is actually really quite major. Uh, this is just five days after I confronted Eric Schmidt about the removal of conservative voices uh, from YouTube and, and from the internet in general. I confronted Eric Schmidt about this just five days ago. And now today, YouTube just dropped a major hammer. They've just removed monetization completely from my channel, uh, from Steven Crowder's channel, um, from uh, Ford Fisher, another journalist's channel, and, and a few others today got hit in a major purge. And some of us are wondering if this is stemming directly from Bilderberg, because as I said, it was only five days ago that I confronted the former head of Google about censorship. And all of a sudden today, five days later, my entire channel gets demonetized. Is it your experience, having been to previous Bilderberg conferences, that you can have that quick a turnaround in terms of from a meeting to when things start happening in the wider world? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, these people, these people work quick, you know, um, and um, we, we can see that. And, you know, I, I mean, it, it could have been possible that this uh, plan from YouTube was set in place a long time ago, and, and I'm sure it was. Um, but maybe post Bilderberg was was just what they needed to kick it into overdrive. So bottom line, regardless, today is when they decided to pull the plug. And the fact of the matter is, it is only five days after they all met together in Montreux, Switzerland. So that's uh, that's pretty interesting right there. I was wondering if you might have a final message for our listeners with regard to this purge or anything else coming out of the Bilderberg conference that maybe people should be watching out for on the horizon as we move forward. Well, I think people need to con be concerned right now with uh, the, the future of the free flow of information online. The internet we have today is not going to be around very much longer. Um, they need to control the narrative moving forward. We have a federal election coming up here in Canada, coming up in October. Um, we have a lot of things happening in the United States, and they're starting to clamp down not on just conservative voices. It, it, it's not about those on the right. It's not about people on the left. It's about anybody who goes against the status quo. So I, I would just, I, I would just uh, warn your, your viewers and your listeners now that um, beware that the, the internet you know today is not necessarily going to be, be the same as it is tomorrow, and we need to protect ourselves now. We need to diversify. We need to start moving into other platforms that are decentralized. I, I happen to believe a lot of these blockchain-based decentralized platforms are going to be the way uh, for us to go moving forward in order to uh, deal with this censorship issue. And I'm talking about sites like uh, Steemit, which has a video sharing platform called DTube. Uh, BitChute is another good one. Minds.com is another good one. Um, there's, there's a lot of uh, free market alternative solutions that are arising as a result of this censorship that's stemming from Bilderberg. 
So I think it's really important today for people to start branching off into these other decentralized platforms because let's face it, YouTube is going to pull the plug any day on me now. They just took away my finances. Tomorrow it could be the channel altogether. And if people are going to want to continue to get the information that they have been, they're going to have to go to these other platforms other than just Google and YouTube. So I would encourage people to, to check those out. Uh, do, do a search for some of these alternative platforms um, such as Steemit, BitChute, Mines. There's a number of other ones. You can find them all in the descriptions of any one of my videos. And I think that's going to be really important moving forward. If you want to continue getting information from people like me, people like yourself, they're going to have to diversify into these uh, other uh, censorship resistant platforms. Dan Dix, I want to thank you for making the time for this interview. No problem. Yeah, keep up the great work. Thanks for having me. That was Canadian independent media journalist Dan Dix of Press for Truth reporting on the recent Bilderberg Summit happening in Montreux, Switzerland this past weekend. Coming up after the break, we will hear from an author who has compiled an exhaustive volume detailing the institutions, the managers, and influential players that are shaping world affairs. Please stay tuned. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. Professor Peter Phillips is a professor of sociology at Sonoma State University since 1994. He served as director of the Media Analysis and Education Project, Project Censored, from 1996 to 2010. He's the author of the 2018 book, Giants, the Global Power Elite, which lists the names and backgrounds of some of the most powerful figures on the planet and the mechanisms by which they express their control. The Global Research News Hour reached out to Professor Phillips just days after the conclusion of the recent Bilderberg Conference to get his perspective on the architecture of global power in 2019. Peter, uh, you served as director of Project Censored for almost 15 years and have continued to be actively involved in media analysis and media literacy. What is the bridge between that work and your uh, current research into the global power elite? Well, I've always been interested in elites. Um, my political sociology PhD focused on elites in the U.S., and I did my dissertation on the Bohemian Club. And um, following from that was the idea that elites, you know, have an ideological hegemony that the corporate media reflects and continues to propagate worldwide. So Project Censored was a natural fit in terms of covering stories that the corporate media didn't cover and then looking at how Chomsky and Herman, you know, laid out the propaganda model of corporate media so over 20 years ago and, you know, really have emphasized that. And so it's, it was a kind of a it was a natural fit, and since not being director, I've got back directly to um, more focusing on the elites themselves, okay, and how power works in the world. Well, let's focus on those elites then. Uh, your book, Giants: The Global Power Elite, revolves around a construct you refer to as the transnational capitalist class. Could you specify exactly what distinguishes this transnational capitalist class from what we traditionally think of as the business class or the ruling class? Well, C. Wright Mills used the terminology in his book, The Power Elite, uh, back in the 50s. And he was saying that there were circles of higher powers 
people interconnected who knew each other, uh, the elites of government, the elites of business, military. And um, the 60s brought about a lot of research um, in, from sociologists on how the, the power elite networks worked in the United States. Um, and so we, we had a number of works. that I think one of the most prominent was Who Rules America by, by Bill Domhoff, Liam Domhoff at the University of California, Santa Cruz. Um, following, following from that, though, was the crisis, um, a profit pri- crisis in terms of uh, corporations making money in the 70s. And we saw, we saw hyperinflation. Uh, we saw the you know, Carter administration engaged in trying to uh, offset uh, high unemployment rates, things like that. Um, so, but that was, that there was what's been called the great U-turn. And in order to continue high profits, we began to see uh, capital and corporations globalize. So they were, corporations were going offshore. They were finding cheaper labor worldwide, um, still, trying to, still bringing products back to the United States to sell, but they took on a global scope. And uh, with that, you start to see folks in Europe, Japan, um, U.S., Canada, um, getting to be involved in business on a greater scale and more regularly. So there's a concentration of wealth that starts to accumulate. It's not just the U.S. It's it's, it's global, and people in the top one percent get richer and, and richer every year, and um, the remaining people in the world, um, particularly the bottom eighty percent, uh, have seen a decline. So we've got eighty percent of the people in the world live on less than ten dollars a day now. Half live on less than $3 a day. So there's this crisis of inequality that's been building since the 70s. Continues to be, um, wealth continues to be concentrated, and our research focused on who's in charge of all that wealth. And we're talking, you know, trillions and trillions of dollars uh, of capital that's uh, mobile and can be invested anywhere in the world. So these giant... Um, capital investment companies like BlackRock and Vanguard and J.P. Morgan Chase and Allianz and UBS are, are worldwide um, and can control mass amounts of money. So there's a, we looked in 19 and 2017 at the trillion-dollar investment management companies. There's 17 of them then, um, and. They collectively hold $41 trillion worth of wealth that they were managing. So it wasn't just these individuals. It just wasn't the company's wealth. It was, um, it was you know, the top 1% of the world takes their excess capital and again gives it to investment management companies to get returns on. So these were billionaires and millionaires um, that, you know, put their money into these companies. And... The 17 companies had 199 directors, so that's who we researched, who these people were. They, they today control over $50 trillion worth of wealth in the world, and, you know, it's a small number of people, and they have very similar backgrounds. You know, they're all um, high publicly edu- uh, public educations, private colleges, um, and 
wealthy, um, and, but they know each other. So there's this network of higher circles of people that is now global. And they get together in places like Davos and the Bohemian Grove and other places socially. Um, but they interact and they have institutions now that are global. And the World Bank, the International Monetary Fund, uh, the Bank of International Investments. I mean, there's a number of institutions that facilitate interaction between the um, global elite. These, these 200 directors, uh, maybe give us a little bit more about the, the characteristics they have in common and, and some of the, the, the you know, to, to the detriment of the, uh, you know, the detrimental consequences that that, uh, I guess, skewed perspective may be having. Well, the detrimental consequences are many, um, and that's increased wealth by the few, uh, which impacts the rest of the world. 30,000 people a day are dying from starvation in the world. That's the U.N. figures. Um, and there's more than enough food to feed everybody. It's, and most of it's thrown away. It's not profitable to sell. So um, those are decisions that capital is making because capital wants a return. Or the people holding the capital, they want an annual return. So they're compelled to invest it in places that will give them a return. They have this $50 trillion now of, of wealth that's, that's floating capital, literally. They can put it anywhere they want. And um, the problem is they've got more capital than they've got places to, to put it to get a, uh, an adequate return in the 3 to 10% range. So that's a, that's a big problem, and they end up doing speculative investments like the subprime mortgage uh, loans back in 2008 and that collapse, that almost collapsed the entire world's economic system and required trillions of dollars of bailout money from governments going to central banks worldwide. Um, the, that is continuing. So wealth continues to concentrate. There aren't adequate places to put it. So the, it, the second option for, for capital is to try to buy up uh, the resources of the world, water rights, land control, uh, mineral rights, um, freeway systems, whatever they can that they'll get a return on. So there's a privatization process that's ongoing that impacts all of us. And the third, the third way, massive amounts of, of wealth are used, used up and, and to give a return to this concentrated wealth is war. Um, permanent war in the world today, and the U.S., of course, taking the lead in terms of, of military spending. But how... You know, the NATO involvements in the U. It's a U.S. NATO empire with 800 to 1,000 bases worldwide, not trying to control and protect global capital. That's what it's about. It's not about protecting the homeland or protecting U.S. citizens overseas unless there's a capital threat. So the military empires of, of the world um, is, is the police force for protecting this concentrated $50 trillion worth of capital that's managed just by these few hundred people. He's, of course, you're, you're referring there to the, uh, the what in, in a chapter you call the protectors. Could you talk a little bit more about how those protectors maintain a loyalty to the aims of these global forces elites uh, as opposed to the governments of, of nation states, uh, such as the United States or the United Kingdom? Well, the nation states, um, the capital nation states, and that's Europe, U.S., Canada, Japan, um, and other capitalist countries around the world, 
where the elites are controlling it, capital elites, um, are in the service of protecting global capital. That's what governments do. So if you look at Trump's behavior or Obama's behavior in terms of protecting global capital, they both did that. They're both protecting Wall Street. They're both trying to make sure that the investments uh, can flow worldwide, they're protected, and uh, there can be returns uh, for, for the wealthy, um, including themselves, of course. Uh, Obama had you know, millions of dollars invested in, in an investment management company, and so did Trump. So you know, that's part of the world agenda of protecting. So intelligence agencies... The Pentagon, you know, the the CIA, of course, or, or you know, British intelligence or German intelligence, they all know that the agenda for the government is to protect the capital and protect this concentration of wealth, not make sure that governments in other parts of the world don't interfere with capital return. So not only they to they're they're debt collectors, but they're also regime changers. So if there's a a government that is not cooperating with this global capital investment, such as Gaddafi in in, in um, Libya, uh, was trying to create his own um, currency based in gold in Africa and get the other countries to go along with it. That wasn't that wasn't going to be tolerated. So they initiated the, you know a regime change there and were successful. Essentially, that happened with Saddam Hussein as well. I mean, he started selling his oil in euros instead of dollars, and that, that did him in. Of course, you so also... It's, that's the focus, is protecting this global capital. Could you speak a little bit more to that, uh, more, that the privatized uh, aspect of the uh, protecting... Of, mil- of security, absolutely. Um, G4S is the second largest private employer in the world behind Walmart. They, they have 625,000 employees worldwide. And they do everything from guarding banks to running prisons to actual mercenary work in various countries, uh, you know, killing people and intelligence work, private intelligence work. So the overlap um, between private intelligence and, 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 and military, um, they're kind of almost merged together. major part of the intelligence agencies in the United States are privatized. So, and are doing, you know, private work, and, and uh, not, these employees aren't governmental. So G4S is just the front runner, so to speak, the largest private uh, military um, source in the world outside of government and armies and, and that. So they're the ones who had the dogs up in the Dakotas attacking the um, pipeline protesters there. Uh, they, they're, they're involved everywhere in the world, include, including protecting settlements in Israel. So um, it's a massive company. Uh, Blackwater's similar. It's now called Academy. Um, they, they run mercenary armies, and Eric Prince has been trying to convince Trump that um, Blackwater should take over managing uh, the resistance forces in Afghanistan um, or the resistance against the resistance forces. So that, you know, it's... It's, it's global, it's private, um, it's deadly, and um, we're seeing that expand and grow. I mean, and it, I mean to use the word fascism is not inappropriate. These these companies they're they're being invested in by these major 
uh, investment firms and, and major corporations, they're all uh, you know, invested in each other, and therefore there are a lot of mutual interests that are being uh, had as well. Well, the $50 trillion is just one big cluster of co-investment. Um, the 17 giants have over $400 billion, that's just the NASDAQ figures, um, invested in each other. Uh, and then all the other, you know, what I call near um, giants, and there's actually three new companies that were over a trillion dollars in the last two years. And then there's many that are, you know, 500 million, you know, or, you know, 500 billion or 800 billion. And you start putting all this together, it's this giant cluster of capital growth and expansion managed by just these few hundred people, protected by governments worldwide, capitalist governments. Uh, and in their military and intelligence agencies work on behalf of these elites. So that's the ballgame. I mean, that's the overall per- perspective. It's not good for the world. It's not good for democracy. Um, and, and, and it's certainly not good for people in countries where they are have, have limited resources and are unable to, to grow or expand. Uh, it's all taken up. It's all controlled and bought out. So that's a catastrophe for the world, and of course, it's it's the main cause of of the environmental disasters that are ongoing. It's, there's less than, than seventy companies in the world um, that produce uh, uh, four fifths of, of the of the global um, warming gases. It's a major concentration of wealth and power. It's transnational. Um, these people get together, and they have planning agencies like the Trilateral Commission and the and the Council of 30 that are private groups that basically set agendas for government to implement. Could I get you to elaborate more on that precise policy-making role that those facilitators are putting together for the global power elite? Well, the Bilderberg is a group of about uh, 100 and 100 to 150. They had like 110 people last weekend in Montrose in Switzerland. Um, 18 of the people this is my book attended last weekend. Uh, but they're not there setting policy. They're set. They're there setting, building consensus, and and um, where they could go back to their institutions that they implement and they implement this consensus building. So the topics covered last weekend were climate, um, the precariat, China, Russia, concerns there, uh, stability of the market. I mean, those are things that these highest-level people um, are, are having conversations about, and they go back to the various institutions with the agreements and understandings that, they, that they've, they've reached at, at these meetings. The biggest one is the Trilateral Commission, which is um, – over 400 people from 40 nations uh, who meet regionally and internationally, and it's all private. There's no government officials involved whatsoever. They put out reports um, that are seen as guides to the White House, to the Pentagon, to the State Department, as to where we need to go and what we need to do. The Trilateral Commission was an outspurt of the, uh, the, you know, from that Rockefeller put together, and uh, Brzezinski, after they went to Bilderberger in the, in the early 70s. 
And uh, they said, oh, this is cool. We need to do this here in the, in the U.S., and they started the Trilateral Commission. The Council of 30 is the top bankers, the world's central bankers and economists. Uh, <clears throat> there's actually 32 people, uh, 31 men, one woman. They added a second woman this past year, and they're based in Washington, D.C., and, and we call them the Executive Committee of Global Capitalism. Uh, they literally are the facilitators. When the, when the Council of 30 puts out a report or, or a policy recommendation, the head of the World Bank or, or the IMF sees that as instructions. Uh, that's the direction that we need to go. Um, so these are very important privately funded, non-governmental uh, policy groups that elites in the world utilize to set agendas and, and point the whole machine in the direction they want it to go. Could you give us a, maybe a real-world example of uh, one of these areas where they, they built a consensus and then you're seeing it enacted uh, on the world stage? Well, I think a good current example is the United um, Global Capitalist Countries Against Venezuela. Um, Maduro, of course, was elected by the people there. Um, the Socialist Party has been in power for over 20 years. The government, the U.S. has been working very hard to try to have a regime change and undermine that. There's certainly a consensus that that large pool of private of oil should be privatized, and the resources in Venezuela uh, invested in where, where the return could go to global capital. That's understood. They have been kind of trying to make that recommendation. But then to go and recognize the head of the assembly as the actual president uh, was, was a kind of an outstanding move, certainly violated sovereignty of their country. But then we see who lines up. It's the U.S., Canada, Germany, France, Great Britain. The capitalist countries line up in support of that regime change um, are, the, are the key players in controlling this global capital. So it's, it's an agenda of protecting and expanding opportunities for global capital to, to grow and expand. Um, the media, of course, goes right along with that, and uh, the, you know, the corporate media, the big television stations and the big newspapers, are all calling for the for change there, or even making statements about Maduro being a, a dictator and controlling that. I mean, that's just absolutely not true. And so there's this um, agenda there that I thought was very obvious that I wrote about it recently. Um, the other place is that six years ago, uh, five years ago, the Atlantic Council, which is another big policy-making group made up of NATO nations, um, put out a report calling for, literally calling for regime change in, in Russia. Putin is very aware that the West would like to see him removed and that uh, opening up Russia to greater opportunities for investment and capital growth. I mean, you know, global capital is just salvating over the opportunities of oil, gas, gold, and minerals that are available in Russia. And they would love to have greater access to those investments. Hmm. Now you're you're getting to the the other uh, instrument that you mention in the book, the ideologists. With the, when you mention the Atlantic Council, um, basically they play an indoctrinating role, uh, putting out the narratives that put governments and local media, educational institutions, and the general public on the same page. Could you give us some maybe? Uh, 
some examples of the, the specific uh, companies that we're talking about and, and, and some of the, what they've been doing? Well, the top big media companies, um, MSNBC and Fox and CNN and, you know, ABC and, 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 and that are, are, they are part of the global news system. Um, they are invested in by all the major giants in very huge ways. In fact, I was just looking up ABC the other day because when they were translating my book on, into Spanish, they, they came up, there was a, there's a typo in there about um, who's invested in the uh, various private, uh, uh, privately owned media companies. Um, and ABC, we had UBS from Switzerland, one of the giant investment companies of the world. We had them at... at, at um, Nine hundred billion, but then there was a then there was a second listing for UBS at six hundred billion. So they wrote me and said, "Which one is it? Which one is it?" So I went back and I looked, and you know, I the current UBS is currently invested in just ABC. I mean, one point eight billion. Um, so they doubled what had been nine hundred million um, just two years ago. So. These giants, these big investment companies, are heavily invested in global media, and 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 um, all of all the television, radio, newspapers. You know, the biggest information sources for most people in the world are um, are invested in by the giants uh, and uh, have an ideological agenda of protecting capitalism and concentrated wealth. I mean, that's that's a given. Now their content, which is which is also really important, is increasingly made put together by public relation firms, giant public relation firms, Omnicom, Interpublic Group, um, and they are in turn producing probably um, close to eighty percent of all the news content in the world. So a story about. Um, what the state what's happening in any country or what's happening in the Middle East is packaged by one of these public relation firms given to corporate media and it re- literally runs uh, as as presented so uh, there's all news is managed and what you get on television news is you know the local murders and the freeway accidents and the weather uh, the rest of it is essentially coming from public relation firms uh, that have already packaged the news story to reflect the ideology that global capitalism wants to see. I, I noticed that you seem to put out a, something of a, a, an open letter signed by 90 colleagues that, uh, that's directed to the, uh, to the elites themselves. Could you argue you know, that, uh, about that, uh, that approach? I mean, you, you seem to be wanting to harness... A lot of uh, you know, public mobilizations, but at the same time, you seem to be willing to engage these global elites on a uh, on a respectful level. And I, could I get you to, you know? Well, I think that we have to engage them directly, and that's part of writing the book is to identify who they are, because um, all these people have email addresses and 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 places of business that they can be reached, um, and it can be impactful to to them. They they have they they have. Ch- children and grandchildren, and they'd like to see their grandchildren have grandchildren. 
uh, a continuation of that, and, and the world environmentally and economically is in danger of collapse. And uh, we, you know, there's some very serious consequences that are going to come down from continued concentration of wealth, including civil unrest and wars and violence, and then overt repression by the military empire that that can grow into massive uh, civil unrest and disobedience. Um, if that if it goes in that direction, there can be um, environmental wars and catastrophes for major parts of the people in the world, um, we, we're in a dangerous situation. And continued concentration of wealth and global warming and environmental practices are just making going to make that worse. And it's that concentration or the desire of wealth to, to gain more wealth that's part, that is causing this and, and is part of the structure. So we're telling elites that they're going to have to share. Okay. You know, they believe that it, you know, by growth that it'll trickle down and the whole world will be saved, and that's not happening. It's going actually the opposite direction in, in a very big way and, a very, and very quickly, and uh, we're faced with, uh, you know, extinction. So there are movements like the Extinction Movement and Occupy and a number of uh, <clears throat> labor movements in China, civilian movements throughout Europe, uh, the Yellow Vest Movement in France that are all challenging basically global power structure. And that's, um, so the elites either, either, either need to share and change their behaviors in, in very big ways in terms of what global capital is doing, or they're going to be faced with economic and environmental collapse. So having said that, we're saying, okay, let's do something about that. Let's work together. And they're certainly, they know that. I mean, that's what part of the agenda Davos was last weekend. I mean, last, last year in January. And then built a burger last weekend. Um, you know, what are we going to do about these crises? And uh, so there's certainly some that are aware of these situations and, and want to make some adjustments. Uh, we have to pressure them. Social movements have to pressure them to um, act on, on, those, on those beliefs and those understandings. In, in major ways, um, and that's how we end up. And, and I, we, of course, cite the Universal Declaration of Human Rights as a value-based, um, uh, you know, <clears throat> uh, concentrated of human rights, the value-based um, for any social movement to assume that we need to have, you know, those human rights as the focus of where we're going in the world. Yes, an essential touchstone. Professor, Professor Peter Phillips, it's been delightful to speak with you. Thanks so much for agreeing to appear on our program. Well, Michael, I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. That was Peter Phillips, professor of sociology and former director of Project Censored. His 2018 book, Giants, the Global Power Elite, is published by Seven Stories Press. You've been listening to the Global Research News Hour. You can listen to our programs every week on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and on partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. You can also download each episode from the website globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I'm series host, creator, and producer Michael Welch. Join us again next week.